Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And this evening we return to our study in 1 John on this third chapter. And we're looking at a familiar theme for us, which is the doctrine of assurance. And we've spent a good deal of time talking about the 19th verse. And uh, for a few weeks we scoured the Bible looking for scriptures that tell us that our salvation is secure, that we can know that we're saved. And this is a really important topic, and it's one that we ought to encourage people to think about. And that's because we live in a time when the gospel has been watered down. We're in an age of pray a prayer, raise your hand, easy believism that really never calls people to the depths of true repentance. It never reveals the high expectations of living the Christian life. And so, as a result of that, today's Christianity is high on, or low on holiness, I should say, and high on immorality. And it really lacks the evidence of regeneration because people are taught to receive, but they're never told to repent. And when they're told this, they never really think too much about their assurance. It's not an issue for them because they have never actually come face to face with a holy God and they understand the high cost of discipleship. So many people rely on a feeling, they rely on an experience, and they are assured when they really shouldn't be because they can't find the evidence of real conversion in their lives. And the reason they are assured is because they never really fully understood the gospel. And so when you bring those people into an environment where preaching is solid, where there is a call to holiness, where the rigors of the Christian life are expounded, then people start to develop concern for their assurance. They will be troubled about it. And if those people aren't saved, then uh, finally, we hopefully, they will hear the gospel and, and understand what it means, and then they'll be driven to true repentance and faith. And the ones that are saved will begin to examine themselves. And they desire preaching on assurance. And they need that because you have to have that to accompany the uncomfortable sermons about holiness. This is really the formula for the preaching of the Puritans in the 16th through the 19th centuries. And that's really what made their preaching so powerful. They were preachers that, that were strong proponents of holiness. And that's why they had the name Puritan. Puritan uh, means that they were pure in what they taught, taught people ought to have pure lives. And that, that term Puritan today has become a derogatory term. It's a synonym for prude. Everybody knows what a prude is? Well, you know, the, the, the interesting definition of prude, uh, it means that, that it's somebody who strives for propriety in their life. And you say, well, what does the word propriety mean? Well, that means correct behavior. Why would that be a derogatory term for, for people to desire correct behavior in their lives? And so if you're a stickler for doing the right thing, if you're honest, if you're ethical, if you believe in morality, if that's what governs your life and you're not a hedonist like everybody else in the world, then you are considered to be a prude. And these men, the Puritans, were prudes in that sense, I suppose. And that's because they called for true conversion. And they said that when a person has really come to Christ, that that will be demonstrated in their life. And so they had no patience for a pretended piety. So Puritan preaching had a lot to do with holiness and the concern for assurance that goes along with that. I mean, when you preach about holiness, then, then the concern for assurance always goes with it. 
That's a natural consequence. Holiness produces doubt. And so when you have strong preaching on on holiness like the Puritans did, you would expect that you would also find strong preaching about assurance. And in fact, the Puritans were very, very strong on the doctrine of assurance. And so thus we have those great sections in the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. They have great sections about eternal security, about preservation, about perseverance. And the same thing would be expected if we look into the epistle of 1 John, and we find that John teaches strongly on holiness, and he says that this is the evidence of, of Christ being in a person's life. And if Paul does the same thing, and if Jesus did the same, then we would also expect that accompanying that theme of holiness, that there would be preaching about assurance. If preaching on holiness produces doubt, then there needs to be a counterbalance to that. We need to preach about assurance, and that's what we find in Scripture. So in Matthew, you find Jesus speaking about the high cost of discipleship, forcefully talking about obeying the commandments. And then in the Gospel of John, we find him equally as forceful speaking about assurance, especially in John chapter 6. Paul hammered the Corinthians on their immorality. And he said, you need to glorify God in your body and in your spirit. And then we find Paul in Romans chapter 8 in one of the highest points of Bible, uh, of Holy Spirit inspiration in all the Word of God. It's all inspired, but some people have said Romans chapter 8 is the highest spire of Christian truth. And there you find the Apostle Paul with that great section on the security of the believer. And so along with holiness and the high demands of living the Christian life, there has to be preaching about assurance. And if we don't have both of those, then Christians are left in despair. If we don't have it, then we have doubting Christians, there are troubled Christians, there are insecure Christians. And so we see in these lessons that 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 type of Christian never accomplishes anything significant, significant for God because doubt is the opposite of faith. And whenever we're low on faith, if faith is at low ebb, then so is our power with God. So we move on tonight to finish this third chapter, and here we're looking at the consequences of assurance. Now, the previous messages, we've been speaking mostly about the fact of assurance and the proofs of it, but now we start to look into the consequences of this for a Christian. So we'll look into the scriptures, and we'll spend some time here on these verses in the next couple weeks or so, trying to understand the importance of this part and how it fits into the rest of the dialogue. So 1 John chapter 3, verse number 18, John says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Now, if you think back for just a moment to what I said about the Puritans, strong preaching on the requirement for holiness will cause a pause in a true convert. There will be examination of his life. And when you examine your life without exception, 
This is what you'll always find. You'll always have a very important realization when you examine yourself. You'll find failure. I mean, that all of us, we're going to find failure. Now, we, we, we are imperfect people. We're never quite able to root out the last vestiges of sin that are in us. And so in addition to thinking that we have disappointed God, we also disappoint ourselves. We have failed. And that personal examination of a true Christian's life also realizes or also reveals or yields another realization, and that is success. There should be times that we find that we have successfully followed God, we have accomplished the work that God gave us to do, and there is true evidence of conversion in our lives. Now, verse number 18 teaches this. It says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so the question is, which of those do we dwell on? Do we spend our time thinking about our failures, or do we put our confidence in the successes? And that's actually the question that John answers in this section. And the answer to it, in short, is that failures are going to be there because we're sinners. If we say that we haven't sinned, then we are liars. John has already told us that. So failures will be in our lives. But do we spend our time there on the failures, which produces our lack of assurance, or do we spend our time thinking about how the Holy Spirit has inspired us to definite demonstrations of love and kindness and affection for the body of Christ? So do we dwell on the successes and the actual proofs that God is alive and his life is working out of us, or do we not? Now, this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, essentially the same thing. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if you see love demonstrated in your life, and if you try to keep the commandments, if you're sensitive to sin, if you maintain the doctrinal integrity of the faith, then you are to concentrate on those successes rather than the part that's common with all people. Now, what's common with all people? Sin. Everybody's a sinner. That's common with everybody. All people sin, and that's failure. But not all people have the successes that I just talked about. Only those that are regenerated, born again, converted believers, blood-washed, believers in Christ are capable of the successes. Only those are capable of the true love of Christ, of holiness and righteousness. An unbeliever can't love as Christ loved. He's not concerned that his sin has, has offended a holy God. He doesn't have any doctrinal integrity. He's not been born again. He's not justified by, by faith. And so he remains only one thing in the eyes of God, and that is a condemned sinner. And this is what we have to get from this passage. Assurance is found in the successes of those impossible things for, for, for lost people. The, we accomplish things that are impossible for unbelievers. So Paul wrote this. He said, wherefore, or Peter said rather, wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Well, we move on into verses 20 and 21 where we discover consequences of assurance. And I've titled the message, Condemned or Convinced? Or I could have said, Are you condemned or are you confident? Verse number 20 says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. 
Now before we start to get into this whole subject here, the first thing that we have to consider is the controversy in this passage. Several times in the previous messages I've mentioned that verse number 20 is a controversial passage. What does John mean when he says, if our heart condemn us, that God is greater than our heart? Well, to help you out on your notes tonight and to understand it a little better, I've included two main interpretations that are, that are put on this particular passage. What does this mean? Well, there's one side that says, God is more compassionate than our heart when it condemns us for our failures. Although we feel unworthy, his work in us has made us worthy whether we feel it or not. Now that statement is a positive view of the passage. God understands our failures. He knows that we love him. He knows that we are his people. And so God is far more compassionate than our heart can ever be. We condemn ourselves, but because we are God's children, God will not condemn us. Now, the other side is a negative view. And this side says that God is greater in judgment than our heart. Our heart is a vastly inferior judge. God knows the full extent of our failures when we do not. Now, I think the best way that, I, that, we can, that I can explain this is just read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say about this. He says, there are two main views which have been advocated. One view says that this is a great verse of comfort... And that what John is really saying is that if there in the presence of God before him, your heart condemns you, do not be downcast. It's all right, for God is greater than our heart. He knows our desires in spite of our failure in practice. All things are open unto him. He knows everything. And with him there is mercy and grace and compassion. Though your heart condemns you, God beholds and forgives you. The other view is the exact opposite. If our heart condemns us, if my own heart makes me feel and know I am a sinner and that I am a cad, if my own heart does that, how much more shall God? For God is greater than my heart and knoweth all things. I do not know everything about myself. At that point, there before him, I know enough. Alas, I know more than I like to know. And I know that even then, I don't know half of the truth of myself and my sinful nature. There are secret faults which I am unaware of. God sees me in a way I do not see myself. He sees me into the innermost recesses. If my heart condemns me, what must be my position in the sight of God? Now, I hope you got that because one side is comforting and the other one strikes more fear into you. Now, there are good men on both sides of this controversy, and there's truth that's found in both sides. One side says John is trying to give us comfort. The other side says John's trying to warn us. On one side, they say John's telling his readers here that they've reached a point where they can have satisfaction that they're saved. And the other side says, no, he doesn't want people to assume everything is well when it's not. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones' opinion is that John's keeping the pressure on, that what he's telling the people is to keep on examining because he doesn't want the readers to become too comfortable. James Montgomery Boyce goes the other way, and he says, we must take the verse as presenting an additional truth by which the questioning heart may be comforted. Namely, that God who knows all has nevertheless acquitted us before the bar of his justice on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. Our confidence is to be found, therefore, not in our experience, but in his acts and his word. So you may be wondering, what conclusion have I reached about it? Well, 
I think there's truth in both sides, and, and both of them make good points, but I'm really more settled on the first view. I think that what John says here is intended to be comforting to us, if for no other reason than this is just the way the English version seems to read. Now, the argument here is over the Greek text. What does the Greek text mean? And both sides have determined that you can't tell for sure what John meant by looking at the Greek text. So it seems to me, though, that verse number 19 sets the tone for the rest, where he says, we shall assure our hearts before him. And so the following verses are for the purpose of building our assurance. Though we do sin, though we do fail, the blood of Christ has cleansed us. Even if it doesn't change the fact that we feel bad about ourselves, we do know this, Christ has covered all of our sin. So if we've met the tests that are mentioned, if we, if we obey God, if we love indeed in truth, then it seems to me that what we do is we stick with the evidence rather than to continue with our doubts. So that kind of gives you an idea what you run into when you, when you start to look into this. You don't just skim over, to it, over it. Bible study is very valuable for finding these little nuances that are in the Scripture. So studying it's really worthwhile. Well, we move on then. Uh, there's a controversy about it, but next I want to talk to you about the condemnation of the heart. He says, for if our heart condemn us, some of the controversy about whether this is a positive or negative statement can be relieved as by doing what some have done, and that's to translate the word if in the passage as whenever. Whenever our heart condemns us. And there are some translations that translate it that way. It doesn't really change the meaning, but it does give some clarification to the certainty of this that our hearts will condemn us. If you're a child of God, you become sensitive to sin. And that's the subject more next week that we're going to talk about, that sensitivity to sin. But whenever gives the sense here that we only have to give it enough time. If we do enough examination, if we give it enough time, we will realize our sin, and then we can claim... God's assurance that he's not going to finally condemn us to hell if we are true believers. Paul said in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, which walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So the human heart rises to condemn us, but then God overpowers that with an objective demonstration of his justice or the administration of justice. We know that our sins have been paid for in Christ, and so we cannot be justly condemned by God. And that same truth is brought out in another way in Romans eight thirty one through 34. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Then we have that confidence booster in John 3.18, where Jesus says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. So no matter what your heart says, God's work of justification is greater than your heart. And so whenever our heart condemns us, which is an indication that it's a common condition for every Christian, whenever it condemns us, it, condemns us, it will happen. But whenever it happens... God's justification is greater than our heart's condemnation. Now, a moment ago in, in, in exploring the controversy of the passage, I said that there's truth in both views. So we're going to indulge the second view for just a moment, and we're going to look at some truth that comes from it. So rather than the comfort of assurance, when is God's judgment greater 
than our heart's condemnation. Well, let me give you two ways that are kind of glued together with superglue. This is the negative view. God's judgment comes down on you hard when you hide your sin. When you hide your sin. Now, Now, sometimes you might think that I'm an advocate for hiding sin. See, when I get on the Facebook thing and I say people are fools for being so brazen and open about their sin that a half-smart church member ought to have enough sense not to post all of his sin all over Facebook so the whole church can see it. I mean, you ought to be smart enough not to advertise it. Well, that doesn't mean I'm advocating in any way that we hide our sin. It ought not to be there in the first place. But if we're going to hide it, at least I would think that, that we've got enough sense or we're smart enough not to stand in the way of a new Christian or be a cause of a new Christian or, a, or even an old Christian of stumbling and rejecting the church because of our ignorant stupidity. I was talking to one of our church members the other day, and, and he said to me, you know, I found out some things about church members through their kids that I'd rather not know. You know, kids are way more honest than adults, brutally honest. And so you need to be careful with your kids. Drug them or something because they're going to repeat everything that you do at home. They're, they're, they're going to tell somebody about it. So we don't, we don't condemn ourselves enough for our secret sins. So if we're successful at hiding it from others, we're never going to be successful at hiding it from God. Now David thought that he had a, had a pretty good cover story. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and she got pregnant And her husband was away, Uriah, her husband was away fighting in the battle and fighting for the self-indulgent king, by the way. And so David was caught. What was he going to do? So he recalled uh, Uriah from the battle, and and he he thought that what Uriah would do, he'd just diddy-bop on down to his house and perform his manly duties. But Uriah was more honorable than David. He was not going to do that. I mean, while the other men are fighting in the battle, he would not go to his house. So David was stuck. He, he got to do something. So he devised another plan, and that plan is to get Uriah drunk and then try to get him to do what he's supposed to do. But Uriah didn't buy that either. And so finally David had Uriah killed, and then he married Bathsheba. So David thought, I've got a great plan going here. I, I've got success with this. Everything's fine as wine. Nobody's the wiser. That is until God told the prophet Nathan to go see David. And long story short... God knew David's sin, and he nailed him for it. And so David's heart didn't condemn him enough. And so God just laid everything bare out in the open before him and said, this is what you did, and we know it. You never can hide sin from God's eyes. And if your heart doesn't condemn you enough, then God will take care of it for you. Now, secondly, stuck to that like glue is this sin, and that is hypocrisy with sin. And this is one that knocks on everybody's door. Sin of hypocrisy runs deep in all of us. And one of, our, one of the favorite excuses that people have about not going to church, you know what, I'm not going to church because the church is full of hypocrites. And you never hear anybody say, I'm going to quit my job because the workplace is full of hypocrites. And I'm never going to go to another Giants game, another 49ers game, because the stadium is full of hypocrites. And that might be true in the sense of the 49ers, pretending to be a football team, but that's, that's another story. But, but there, there are hypocrites everywhere. And, and if you say that you aren't one of them, then your heart's not given enough credit. Hypocrisy is a hard sin for us to overcome, and, and we just aren't really very introspective about it. I'd like you to go to Matthew chapter 7 for just a minute, and 
This is one of the favorite verses for the biblically challenged. Uh, People don't know very much about the Bible, but they're really experts on this one verse. Matthew 7, verse number 1. And this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 1. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. And that's about the extent of Bible knowledge for a lot of people. And so they aren't astute enough to read five more verses where Jesus says in verse number 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now there is judgment on a whole group of people, and it's harsh judgment. I mean, somebody that Jesus is talking about here, they're scroungy dogs, and some of them are filthy hogs. That's what you call judgment. Somebody can judge. Now, there's more to verse 1 than people give it credit for. I mean, you, you can judge. The Bible doesn't say you can't judge, but it actually lies out, uh, lays out the criteria here for judgment. And, and if you meet the criteria between verses 1 and 6, then it's okay to judge. Let's, let's listen to what it says. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now why beholdest thou the mote that is thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So the qualification for being a judge is that our sins have to be dealt with and then pushed out, and then we're qualified to talk to someone about their faults. But hypocrisy has two sides to it. What we do is we hide our sins, and we think nobody sees those, and so with false piety we go and we condemn others. And then, while we uh, are observing others, we have our eyes wide open looking at them, but then our eyes are sealed shut when we look at ourselves. Now, in either of those cases, our heart has not done enough to condemn us. I mean, it, it hasn't beat us up enough yet to get us to quit. And when that happens, God steps forward, and with his perfect knowledge, he knows exactly who we are, he knows exactly what we've done, and... We might not know it. Sometimes we don't even understand when we've been inconsistent and when we've done the wrong thing. But when we're inconsistent and we judge wrongly, that's sin. And our heart might not condemn us, but God knows more than our heart. Albert Barnes said, We cannot hope then for a calm mind in any supposition that God does not see our sins as clearly as we do, or in any hope that he'll look on them with more favor and indulgence. Peace cannot be found in the indulgence of sin in the hope that God will not perceive or regard it. For we can sooner deceive ourselves than we can him. And so if you want to find some truth in the second opinion, that it's a negative view, then what John says is your heart is never going to go far enough in condemnation. It'll stop before it ever goes deep enough. Now, what you will do, you might be able to smooth off some of the rough edges, but God goes deeper than the surface. God goes down and yanks sin out by the roots. Well, how do you, con- how do you control that condemning heart? Or how do you soothe the condemn- condemning heart? John actually gave us steps for it in the first chapter. He says in verse number 9, If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So those are the steps. Acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, forsake it, and that calms a condemning heart. And then, as Peter said, you keep your heart with all diligence. What what does that mean? Well, I guess you could put it this way. Fill in the hole that sin dug. You see, one of the things that sin has an uncanny way of doing it, the sin sin or more sin comes back and fills in the hole that it's already dug. So what are you going to do? Well, here's your third point. Replace sin with holiness. Change your activities. Isn't that what verse 18 says? Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. James says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now you look at that and you think, well, well what, what's James' intent here? Is he, is he telling us that the only deed that we need to worry about is we need to go find an orphan and we need to go find a widow and we need to do something for them? Well, no, that, that's... that's This part of what you're supposed to do. It's an idea of the right direction to go. What he's actually telling us there is you need to get busy doing something for somebody. Do something for somebody. Some acts out of the love of your heart that's been put there by Christ. Do some selfless acts. This is what James is talking about. And, you know, when people get mad at church and they say, I'm not going back to that church because of all those hypocrites, 99% of them are mad because they are takers and not givers. Self is always the hero, and so they're always thinking about them. So the selfish person and the angry church member rarely does the second part either that James speaks of. He says that we have to be, keep ourselves pure and unspotted from the world. And you usually find people like this that get mad because they say everybody's a hypocrite or have more spots than a Dalmatian. I mean, all over them. So you fill up the hole with holiness. You stop the pettiness, you stop the bitterness, and when you do that, you find that your heart doesn't come back as often to condemn you. You'll be happier with you, you'll be happier with the church, you'll be happier with the pastor or whoever else that you got problems with or think that's wronged you. So do you want to be condemned, or is it better to be convinced? If your heart condemns you, Can you start to look at the deeds that you've done and and see uh, the successes that you've had in your life and there in that find that you're one of God's children? Checking this out can be a positive experience. Checking it out can also be a negative experience. Now the question is, are those deeds there? And if you want it to be positive, as God wants it to be positive, then what you have to do is just do the right thing. This is what God expects from us. Holiness in our lives and holiness done in the right way, adds to our assurance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that comes from it. And Lord, we we, we just ask you that you would assure our hearts and Lord, we'd see those evidences and we would dwell on the successes that we've had. And whenever we see sin in our lives, we, we just pray that you'd give us the consciousness of that and the willingness to repent of it immediately and to turn back to you and to do your will. Well, we just thank you for the great blessings that you give us and for this, this evening that we've had to fellowship with one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.